Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, April 1st, 2022. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, inviting you. I think we're uh, five days away from our Palm Beach live podcast in Florida. Commentary.org slash live podcast for more details and more information. We are getting a spectacular turnout. There'll be a lot of people for you to meet. You can meet us. You can meet your fellow commentary listeners, commentary readers, commentary family. It's going to be a great event. Commentary.org slash live podcast. And who will be there? Me and who else? Executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. John. Also, Dan Senor will be there to join us. Uh, guys, so much, so much to talk about um, that I don't even know where to start. So let's start with the fact that um, the argument that what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander uh, is a very big uh, political uh, truism. And uh, right now, both Republicans and Democrats are paying through the nose for their conclusions and determinations that uh, they need to break the rules and be incredibly egregiously partisan uh, with the uh, gerrymandering that takes place or the district redesigning that takes place after every census. Um, And all over the country, both Democratic and Republican maps for new congressional districts and new uh, local districts, state legislative districts, are, are being thrown out by judges, like everywhere. One by the Supreme Court yesterday by a, a, a court in New York State uh, for um, what is literally an almost hilariously uh, rigged map. Um, the Supreme Court uh, dealing with a uh, an effort to boost the number of minority heavy districts uh, in a way that actually the Supreme Court says violates the uh, uh, Voting Rights Act. Um, And North Carolina comes out against Republicans. I think Texas came out against Republicans. Like there are these, I think it's six or seven states in which the maps drawn by state ledge or or by whoever um, are being tossed by by judges. Um, and this is a very complicated, interesting issue because there are a lot of people who think judges shouldn't be involved in this at all. Uh, not the not the not the Wisconsin case because that's actually a, a federal voting rights case and uh, and that that is one area in which uh, for now for almost 60 years, uh, the judiciary is used as a as an as an oversight uh, mechanism for a piece of legislation ensuring um, uh, that uh, of not only voting rights access but also the distribution of voters in districts, uh, particularly in in formerly segregated or Jim Crow states, is not um, you know are are not uh, done done unjustly. But in the case of New York State, for example, New York State literally passed a change to the state constitution in an effort to um, end gerrymandering by creating a uh, a nonpartisan commission that would design these maps. That was done in 2013, and then the state legislature, because of a conflict on the on the commission, basically just drew its own <laughs> own maps, and 
relatively and basically ended up with a with a, a map that would have had 22 Democratic districts and four Republican districts uh, in a state that is largely Democratic, but not that largely Democratic. Uh, so uh, judge ruled that that was a violation of the state constitution. Um, and it, it seems you're, if you read about this, you'll hear people saying, well, this is almost certainly going to be overturned because they found a rural judge and the Republicans, you know, went judge hunting and went for a rural judge that would find in their favor. But I don't know, the more I read about this case, the more it does seem like it's a patent violation of the meaning of the state constitution and that these maps which don't, in the New York case don't just involve co- Congress, but involve the state legislatures. Uh, are, are, are just pretty, pretty bad. So I don't know what to make of this, except that, as I say, for now, for for 20 years, more, more like the last 12, but even longer. Here's the idea. Republicans say Democrats gerrymander. Democrats say Republicans gerrymander. Now, in, now they're both gerrymandering in order to prevent the other from, you know, winning a unilateral victory and that, uh, that it, and not to do so as a form of unilateral disarmament. And so instead, they're having these embarrassing reversals. And I just think it's an interesting example of what happens in a time of, of, of hyperpolarization. Having said all that, and I'm going to repeat this, I don't know, there is a real issue with the idea that judiciaries just come in and say, no, 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 your map doesn't count. They're not elected. Elected officials are elected, uh, and and uh, partisan gerrymandering is not in and of itself, you know, an, an illicit thing. This is part of what people vote in people to do. So that's my spiel. Anybody have any thoughts about this? Yeah, I mean, I'm, it's just that's the way of the world. <laughs> We've empowered Congress has empowered the courts to adjudicate uh, maps, especially those that are not sufficiently compact or do not comport with the VRA and have sufficient minority minor, uh, majority minority representation, et cetera. So if you want to <clears throat> amend that, then it needs to be amended in Congress. I mean, these judges have been empowered thusly. And it's not as though this is sort of an even, especially this year, it's not an even, uh, you know, both sides doing their best to, to upend these norms. And, and so we can keep blame uh, you know on both of them evenly democrats have been wildly in uh out out uh, performing republicans in the egregious maps they've been drawing the cook political report as of i think a month ago estimated that democrats would probably could expect four to five new seats out of the redistricting process alone uh more than republicans and the reversals that they've experienced in courts um in places like maryland and now new york and some others um have wisconsin have reduced that to maybe one or two and that was before new york actually now we're probably closer to even so you know the ledger is dominated more by democrats making very egregious maps because they've convinced themselves that republicans do this all the time so now they have to do it that's this is the logic that they've been convincing themselves of for the better part of the last decade. And so they acted on it and they've been humiliated as a result. 
It's, it's funny how it is. I think Noah's right that it's part of this, uh, it's part of their overarching rhetoric about we need to save democracy from the other side, which wants to undermine democracy. So to save democracy, we have to undermine the process through executive orders, through, you know, through this sort of gerrymandering. And I was struck by how, you know, most, most voters probably don't follow these gerrymandering issues. They're kind of technical, especially when they get into the courts. But all you have to do to explain it to someone, because I, I had to do, I did this with my kids. You show them the map that was drawn. You're like, and they'd be immediately look at it and go, what? Like, why is all that red? And why is all this blue? But the but the the tone that a lot of the judges across the board have been using to describe what the Democrats have done recently is interesting to me because it's quite shocking. You know, you don't usually hear things like, phrases like irrevocably tainted used to describe a map making process, but it certainly was in New York or extreme gerrymandering, which was used by the judge, I believe in Maryland. So these cases are actually so clear, so clearly violative of the idea that you should be drawing districts with some sensibility to, to you know, bipartisanship that it's impossible to ignore. But again, it does go to this issue to, to save democracy, we must undermine democratic process. Now, the Supreme Court, you know, so there, there are different forms of gerrymandering, right? There is there is gerrymandering that is designed, you know, ha, was designed uh, for the purpose of, of protecting individual congressmen uh, and, and protecting them in districts that have sort of gone awry for them so that you pack people into those districts that will help ensure the specific reelection of a specific Congressman. Um, That's where we get the word, Elbridge Jerry, gerrymandering. Exactly, yes. right. Uh, then you have racial gerrymandering, which is explicitly outlawed uh, under the terms of the Voting Rights Act, and which uh, courts are empowered to uh, involve themselves in. And then you have partisan gerrymandering, which is the general effort to design a map that favors one party's position over the other by, by packing by taking voters from uh, uh, the party that they don't like or aren't part of, you know, whoever is in the majority, and packing them into uh, districts, um, you know, so that so that you 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 recognize that there have to there are going to be two or three Republicans in your state who are going to get real. So put as many Republicans into that district and extract na- neighborhood by neighborhood extract the Democratic voters from them and put them in another district. And then you can boost a district that might be close to 50-50 or something like that. You can sort of either create a new district for somebody or you can basically have, you know, a, a demographic geographic mix that will overly favor one party uh, uh, over the other. And that is what partisan gerrymandering is. And the Supreme Court ruled in 2019 that partisan redistricting is a political matter, not a judicial matter, not a matter for federal courts. Partisan gerrymandering is a political matter, not a judicial matter. It was a five to four decision. We wrote about it a lot in commentary, actually, because the idea was it's just not fair that, you know, when Republicans get in power, Democrats said in 2010, when they when uh, things were going well for them, that they pat, that they they smutched a lot of people into these districts, which itself was hilarious, because, of course, as Noah says, this is the way of the world. Partisan gerrymandering, one of the ways in which Democrats maintained their majorities in the House over 40 years was 
because they made judicious use of partisan gerrymandering to ensure that they would remain the majority party in the House. So those were, you know, uh, over the course of three, uh, 60, 70, 80, and 90, four different decades in which they controlled, in many states, controlled those those processes. So um, partisan gerrymandering was the hot topic among a Democratic Google people in the in 2015, 2016, and they were really eager to make sure that there could be court, that the federal courts could then become the kind of um, final arbiters. And except for now, except for racial gerrymandering, the Supreme Court has ruled that they should not be and cannot be. But um, but then they're ra- in the case of New York, so they actually had this racial gerrymandering case in Wisconsin that the, that the court ruled. Uh, unfairly privileged, uh, like created um, a a disproportionate number of minority seats uh, and shoved everybody else into these seats and that this this in in its own way was a violation of the Voting Rights Act. And then you have the court in New York, which is ruling on the grounds of a violation of the language of the state constitution, which had been amended on this very point. So I think what we have here is, uh, like I say, is, a, is an example of the distortive effects of uh, projection and mirroring on American politics, which is they do it, so we're going to do it. And But what's more, when we do it, it's good, and when they do it, it's evil. And you know why? Because we're good and they're bad. So Vox and places like that were absolutely outraged by the partisan gerrymander in North Carolina after the 2020 census, because they were already outraged by the partisan gerrymander in North Carolina after the 2010 census, which led to several courts ruling that it was, you know, that that it was illegitimate. And now this is even worse and it's terrible, but I don't see any of the articles on the Maryland gerrymander or the New York gerrymander. Why? Because Vox likes when Democrats do well and it doesn't like when Republicans do poorly. And but so aside from, yeah, I mean, aside from the activist class and the very, very online people, um, you, I, you have to wonder what the parties think the American voting public thinks when they look on this stuff. I mean, I, I, I think it greatly contributes to the lack of faith in institutions and the reason that everyone is skeptical of everything. I mean, to see your 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 parties vigorously attempting to cheat um, while trying to claim the moral high ground is, I think, deeply disturbing, actually. I mean, I, I understand it's the way of the world, but 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 there's a there's a sort of turbocharged quality to it at the moment that I think is very bad. But in other words, we cheat because they cheat. So in essence, it's like, OK, it's like in baseball. If you're going to use pine tar, I'm going to use a spitball, you know. If you're going to cork your bat, I'm going to, you know, cut holes in the ball. I mean, it's it, that that is and that, that is that is the rule of competitive cheating always. Right. When you get right down to it, when when people are confronted with being accused of cheating in a competitive head to head situation, they will they will say they did it first. Or what are you talking about? Everybody knows everybody does this. And now you're singling me out. This is terrible. I'll give you another example of this just for the, just for the hell of it. Um, 
because of the inability to hold yourself responsible for your own behavior by um uh we are now seeing we have been seeing over the course of the last two or three weeks op-eds now sort of increasing in number that are claiming that katanji brown jackson's hearing was uniquely abusive to the nominee linda greenhouse has a piece today there were pieces all last week of jonathan cape out you don't understand how abusive this was that she had to sit there and take this injustice there were policy injustices over whether or not she was too soft on 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 child molesters and things like that and then they also sort of insulted her and did this it's just terrible it's horrible and uh, some of us are sitting there going are you effing kidding me first of all it was pretty gentle right here's one example uh ben sass said he couldn't vote for katanji brown jackson notwithstanding the fact that she was winsome then it was like oh he said she was winsome that's hard how dare he use such a condescending term saying somehow what is she pretty what is she pretty and 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 vapid like winsome that's a word you use to describe an accomplished jurist with an incredible record and all of that and then it turned out that he had described brett kavanaugh as winsome in 2018 so he had used the word winsome to mean appealing or attractive or something like that and bring this up only to say that there is this fascinating fact which is that people see evil intent in the other guy's behavior uh when they themselves have engaged in behavior that is equally as bad if not worse no one on earth could claim unless you believe every word that was said against Republican nominees, particularly Brett Kavanaugh, that Katanji Brown Jackson's treatment was anything less than kid gloves because she wasn't accused of raping a girl in a house 35 years ago. But there's another there's another feature at work here that does strike me as being a little bit new at least, or at least a little bit more um blatantly stated on the Democrat side. And that's that they're not just it's not just partisan tit for tat. Like, you know, every every Republican claims their nominees are being, you know, abused. Uh, and in, in the case of Kavanaugh, it was so egregious that that was correct. And and Democrats claim, oh, it's so unfair. They're treating this way and this way. But when Kavanaugh was nominated, I remember very clearly the Democrats message wasn't just that he's a terrible gang rapist who drinks too much beer and, you know, gambles or whatever, all the other implications they had about his character. It was that this position is so important and a lifelong appointment that the process must drag on and on, including a thorough FBI investigation. We need to, the process has to save us from these monsters who the Republicans are nominating. Um, but when it's their nominee, the process has to be booked along, like, come on, let's go, let's get this signed off on. We, we, we gave you this perfect candidate, so I don't know why you're even questioning her about her actual record in sentencing, for example. And I think those attacks on process, whether it's you know the gerrymandering process, the voting process, uh, the, the confirmation process, that's what actually undermines the average person's faith in our institutions working and functioning well. And, and the idea that 
we have to simply with blind trust, accept that the Democrats want democracy to thrive and the other side wants to undermine and destroy it is the is the motivating principle, at least for the most part, isn't among them. The others go along with it because it gets them elect, you know, victories and, and nominees and whatnot. But that is what really disturbs me. This idea that when it's a Democratic nominee, the process should be efficient, smooth and uncritical. When it's a Republican nominee, the process has to be completely uh, uh, taken over by partisanship in order to make sure that these monsters are put on the bench. The reaction to Ben Sass is instructive <clears throat> because there was a lot of frustration with him after saying, oh, he said all these nice things about the nominee and he's not going to vote for her. You know, that's just rank partisanship. Well, yeah, it's facilitated. This is a free vote. You don't have to vote for this nominee because we reduced the threshold to a majority vote. Sue Collins has already said she's going to vote for this nominee because she votes for every Supreme Court nominee. Seems like her M.O. Uh, they might get a couple other Republicans. But nobody else has to, because this nominee will be confirmed with a simple majority vote as a result of first Democrats nuking the filibuster for judicial nominees below the Supreme Court bench, and then Republicans following up, as they said they would, by nuking it for the rest of the of the bench. So this is this is the state of affairs that you asked for. You got it. Look, things are much worse than they used to be in this regard. That is absolutely true. You know, Scalia passed with 98 votes without any and two abstentions, I think, in 1986. And, you know, RBG and uh, Elena Kagan and Stephen Breyer and, you know, all sailed through with enormous majorities, bipartisan majorities. That was the way of the world. And it, the the only case before sort of the, pre, you know, is Clarence Thomas, aside from the, you know, denial of Bob Bork, is that Clarence Thomas ended up getting a 52-48 vote. But, um, but as, as Noah, as you would point out, he actually got the 60-vote threshold to close debate to get to the vote to the floor. That's what's been eliminated, the cloture vote to allow an up, up or down uh, uh, majority vote. Um, but the uh, partisan nature of these nominations, you know, Alito, Roberts, like they did it first. I'm sorry. Like, I, I, I hate that kind of thing. But for, the, for, for Democrats to complain that the process has become hyper-partisan, when they created the conditions under which you were supposed to oppose a a um a, a highly qualified nominee because of their views then they can't complain when it goes the other way it's they can um and they are and they're doing it and there seem to be you know there seems to be an idea that you're you're not allowed to do it because she's a woman and she's black but of course, uh, being a woman didn't spare Amy Coney Barrett from being accused of being part of a Christian cult uh, that uh, that that believed women were subordinate to men. A fascinating thing to think of a of a woman under the age of fifty with seven children who had risen was ambitious enough and had risen far enough in her career while having seven children, including a child of special needs, uh, to make it to be a nominee of the Supreme Court suggests that whatever whatever ideas were being promulgated by her, you know, by this uh, group uh, of Catholic, you know, the sort of the, this Catholic th thought group that she was part of did not somehow impede her own process to uh, to express her ambition and go on. And nonetheless, I don't know how many hours of that hearing were dedicated 
to that nonsense. Uh, she was a woman that didn't spare her, right? Clarence Thomas is black. It didn't spare him. Uh, and, and also the idea that any accusation of a Republican is a prima facie necessary to be investigated uh, like it was, you know, um, the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. Um, that is now axiomatic. And w- things are getting worse. And things are going to get worse in this regard with Democrats. Because they have now convinced themselves that any Republican victory of any kind uh, going forward um, is a threat to democracy because of Trump. And because if you don't say that Trump was evil, now you are you are you are part of the process of destroying our democracy from within. And by the way, if you want to save our democracy from within, therefore, partisan gerrymandering is now even more important because uh Maybe it's cheating, but it's cheating with a higher purpose, which ultimately is what gerrymandering is when it's not well, just guardianly cynical. The Guardian Sam Levine said the GOP's 2022 efforts or 2022 um, redistricting efforts were uh, an attempt to, quote, rig the 2022 elections. Ari Berman said if Republicans prevail in rigging the 2022 election, they'll be more emboldened in 2024, especially if Trump's on the ballot. Seth Moscott. Uh, he's a professor at uh, the University of Denver. Masket, embracing yeah. uh, Masket, embracing yeah. nonpartisan Saul Moscott is, is an optometrist. Saul <laughs> okay. Moscott is New York's favorite optometrist. Seth Masket is a professor at the University and of soon Denver. to be our sponsor if we keep it up. <laughs> yeah, I know. No, not not after this. Seth, you're in trouble. <laughs> Seth Masket, University of Denver. Embracing nonpartisan redistricting will cost the Democrats some seats and quite possibly control of the House and several state legislatures. Um, which was an abdication of their responsibility as a as a, a, a governing vehicle, as a party with a, several constituencies that they're beholden to. They have no choice but to deliver them what they want, which is in the Atlantic's headline, quote, why Democrats might need to play dirty to win. But yeah, so that's so that so that's where we are. And they've just been more... talking themselves up into this froth right. for a long time. Yeah. So and now and, it's manifesting so they... in really ridiculous overreach. That they were clamoring for people. The Democratic Party is not well served by its commentary class. I don't know who is well served by their commentary but class. But it's not this just their commentary class. They actually literally attempted with the Supreme Court case to change to in to um, interpolate federal courts into the uh, districting process, which is described in the Constitution, and four, by the way, four liberal justices supported that effort. So that was that's ten years old. Like the like the we're going to get the partisan gerrymander once and for all. And I think part of the reason for that is that what they understand, what Democrats understand, is that when it comes to uh, gaming the system, if the if the solution to a partisan gerrymander are the creation of these nonpartisan commissions, right, that, uh, uh, or, you know, um, bipartisan commissions that have to sit down and, you know, agree and uh, draw, draw maps together. Um, uh, A, that may not work. So you end up sending it back to the state legislature, which then draws a 22 to four map like in New New York that then gets thrown out. Or they're really good at they're really good at getting themselves appointed to things like commissions. And they're really good at, you know, being part of the staff that, you know, the, the working staff that's hired by such commissions to do the computer work, to design these commissions and things like that. And they think that they can work their magic through these, 
through these unelected bodies, um, as opposed to 240 years of American tradition that say that this is among the things, or not 240 years, whatever it is since the Constitution was written, this is among the things that you judge your congressman for. Uh, is and 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 Congress is how is how these is how is it's one of the it's one of the things that elected officials do that they can be uh, they can be run against uh, on the grounds that they are trying to skew the political system to their own naked advantage. Uh, I don't know how successful it is. It's hard to know, uh, but it is. But there is a there the, the remedy for part, partisan gerrymandering is voting out people who gerrymander partisanly, you know, and maybe it doesn't work very well, but it, there is a remedy. It's not that there is no remedy. Um, anyway, uh, let me uh, step back for a second and talk to you about our friends at fastgrowingtrees.com. Spring and summer are seasons for finally getting outdoors for entertaining pool parties and barbecues. But if your yard looks like a plant cemetery, you're not going to enjoy it as much. So get your place looking like a resort easy with fastgrowingtrees.com. When it comes to caring for your plants, know-how matters. That's why fastgrowingtrees.com's experts curate thousands of plant varieties that will thrive in your specific climate, location, and needs. No waiting in lines, no messy cars from hauling plants all over town because you order online or over the phone and your plants are shipped to your door in one to two days. Plus, their growing and care advice is available 24-7. Whether you're looking for increased privacy, shade, or adding some natural beauty to your yard, fast-growing trees have the perfect plants and the expertise to help you find them. Even if you've never had a green thumb, they'll make you feel like you do. One million home gardeners have already seen what fastgrowingtrees.com can do for them. Plus, with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, you can trust everything will be healthy for years to come. So go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary right now, and you'll get 15% off your entire order. Get 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary and sorry one second while i pull this other one up you know what i'm gonna say it's the x chair i'm sitting in my x chair i got that dynamic variable lumbar supporting my back if i feel hot which i don't really right now i can turn on the lmx temperature regulation and cool myself off if i feel cold which i don't right now i can turn on that lmx temperature regulation and heat myself up uh can your current office chair give you a massage while you're working my x chair can heat cold back support massage unbelievable customized support of that dynamic variable lumbar all these facilities all these all these gugas all these wonderful features Try try the X chair for yourself risk-free for 30 days. Take my advice. Once you realize how much better your chair should be, you'll never go back, I promise. So go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month, xchaircommentary.com. Uh, so uh, one other thing I was going to mention, um, uh, as, uh, as we are increasingly not talking about COVID, right, um, hospitalizations are now down to the lowest number they've been since we started collecting data on hospitalizations from COVID. Uh, so uh, the Omicron wave and maybe whatever the new 
sub Omicron wave that is coming through is not is having is either burned through or is now at its height. There were about sixty three thousand hospitalizations a day. Now there are sixteen, and uh, and it's and it's dropping day by day, as is the death toll, as is the case number. Um, and yet, Justin Fox at Bloomberg has published a piece saying we should mask forever. Uh, I noticed that uh, various um, COVIDians are are uh, terrified that we are, you know, ending restrictions too soon, and we are now uh, 18 days away from the CDC uh, issuing its new guidance on, or issuing, or changing, or allowing to stay in place the guidance on whether or not we should mask. Uh, on public transport. Um, there's an amazing piece uh, that just came out last night in Vanity Fair by Catherine Ebon, uh, who is one of the people who has been doing investigative work on Wuhan and uh, and particularly the EcoHealth Alliance run by Peter Dajic, which is the which is the focus of this piece. Uh, remember Peter Dajic, uh, somebody who got tens of millions of dollars from the federal government to study the issue of coronaviruses jumping from animals to humans um, and engage the Wuhan Institute of Virology uh, as his partner uh, in doing so, that he also organized this letter uh, to The Lancet, uh, the British medical journal, early in 2020, um, uh, abusing anybody who would claim that there might have been that the that the virus was not of natural uh, origin and that it just jumped to people, uh, he he arranged this letter, uh, which has now been retracted on the grounds that should have been the grounds at the time that um, he had an obvious conflict of interest in that he was somebody who got money from both DARPA and uh, the defense analysis, research, whatever that thing is called, and from the National Institutes of Health to do gain-of-function research, uh, meaning research where you actually, uh, you actually make a virus worse in the, in the lab uh, and see what effect it will have in humans. Uh, in 2014, the federal government uh, put a, a halt to all gain-of-function research, and that halt was then partially lifted or partially redesigned in 2017. Um, anyway, this piece uh, reveals the extent to which uh, the idea that something untoward may have happened in the Wuhan lab was far more uh, accepted uh, in the community of people who study these things than we had been led to believe, and that in Early last year, a paper was submitted. Uh, Francis Collins, the head of the NIH, uh, convened a discussion group about a paper that was in preprint, meaning that it had been accepted for publication but was not yet published, by another virologist named Jeffrey Bloom that had uh, raised questions about the Wuhan lab. Uh, it can, the paper contained sensitive revelations about the NIH uh, and it, how it had done things. And so he sent it to Francis Collins, the head of the NRH, who con convened a, a discussion. And at this discussion, the discussion suddenly turns from the paper itself to ways in which the paper should be suppressed. Uh, here's how we could suppress it, basically said uh, evolutionary biologist uh, Christian Anderson. Um, 
the meeting became contentious. Anderson found the preprint deeply troubling and uh, and said um, one of the things he said was we can't publish this because he would needs he Anderson would need security outside his house. Um, and because he was scared if this came out that people would blame him and virologists like him and therefore they would come after him. So the paper shouldn't be published. Um, and Anderson, so Anderson said uh, uh, he was a screener at the preprint server. He then offered to either entirely delete the preprint or revise it in a way that would leave no record that this had been done. So uh, as, as we are going on here, we now have evidence of an effort to suppress at the highest levels of the American government information, ex scholarly information raising questions about about the um you know about the origins of, of the virus and people in the hearing of Fauci and Fran of Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins both of whom were on this call saying kill this paper i'm going to go into the computer and delete the paper because i'm afraid that people are going to come to my house now uh the guy who said this anderson uh said bloom's account was false um, but another person on the call said that it was accurate. So uh, here we are. Uh, the virus is going away uh, or appears to be going or turning endemic or whatever you want to call it. And the real question here is, thank God for this piece and other things, because I just don't think we can let this lie. I mean, there is a there is a there is a, a conspiracy at work to prevent us from finding out what the origins of this were. Uh, and it's obviously incredibly important that we find out what the origins of this were, not least because we are right now trying to figure out our geopolitical strategy on the planet Earth in the 21st century. And if the Chinese had a material role in creating it and in, rele and, and, and in refusing to share, let's not say they released it on purpose, but in refusing to share information early enough that would have allowed people to, say, start the process of the vaccines or something like that um you know uh a million more than a million deaths are on their head pair this with the revelation a uh, month two months ago uh about the suppression of the um inefficacy of booster shots for uh adults under 40 i think it was or 50 um also shocking I mean, um, denial of 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 relevant, vital information for Americans. Uh, these people have fed the very forces that that have you know uh, that they complain about um, because of the conspiracy that you're talking about that is real. Um, they have not had the kind of compliance. Uh, with, with the measures that they that they've enforced, with the, the the kind of compliance that they've wanted to see, and it's completely understandable, to be honest. What's shocking as well as but the, in this Vanity Fair story is how very early on, immediately, the narrative was locked in, and this is at a time when publicly Fauci and others were saying, "Well, there's only so much we know. We're trying to figure this out. There's a lot of uncertainty, so we have to. You have to trust us about lockdowns, about masking, about all these policies that we're recommending. Trust us because at least we have some expertise in this, so we're going to figure it out." Meanwhile, they had already 
decided. We definitely aren't going to look at any aspect of this, how this started over here. We're not, we're not going to talk, even talk about it. In fact, we're going to, we're going to have, have this become anathema in any sort of public debate. That is weird. That's a weird kind of power move that, that if we weren't talking about people's lives being at stake would be clear, you know, bureaucratic, uh, posturing that we are unlikely to be surprised by. But in this case, the certainty of their message and all the stuff that you know Jim Meggs has written about for the magazine about the big lie, that immediately happened. And there's something wrong with the public health bureaucracy that immediately resorts to that sort of narrative framing and suppression of information at a moment of crisis when what they should be doing is being honest. Um, let, me, let me just quote one passage from Catherine Ivan's piece. Uh, the effort to close the debate in favor of the natural origin hypothesis continues today. In February, the New York Times gave front page treatment to a set of preprints. Remember preprints? That's what this uh, Jeffrey Bloom thing was. Written by Michael Warbay at the University of Arizona. Christian Anderson, that's one of the people on the call, and 16 co-authors, including Gary, another person on that call that I talked about, claiming that a new analysis of public data from the Huanan market in Wuhan provided, quote, dispositive evidence that the virus first leapt to humans from animals sold there. Do you remember this? We talked about this on the podcast, this New York Times piece. But a number of top scientists, Bloom among them, questioned that assertion, saying the preprints, while worthy, relied on incomplete data and found no infected animal. Uh, here's Ian Lipkin, an epidemiologist at Columbia University, who favors the natural origin theory, favors it, believes in the finding of this preprint. I don't think they offer proof. They provide evidence that more strongly supports the link to the wild animal market than to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And that's the way I would have phrased it. So remember, they gave this the New York Times as a kind of, aha, see, all the you've been reading these lunatics for months, Nicholas Wade and others who are coming up with this cockamamie theory and now we're going to use this report, this use geolocation and this and that and the other thing to prove definitively that dispositively that uh, the that the uh, COVID, vir COVID virus was a um, COVID-19 was uh, of was of natural origin. But it didn't prove that, as the story said, and it was part as as we now New York Times was allowing itself to be used as part of a desperate effort by the scientific epidemiological establishment to evade scrutiny and to cast doubt on the increasing body of evidence that says we better take a hard look at the origins of this because the story that we were told from the beginning that somebody ate a bat doesn't quite make sense. That from one person eating a bat you know, worldwide, several million people have died and a million people in the United States may have died. Um, and and just and the media have decided again because of all the everything that happened uh, and Trump and Republicans being skeptical and vaccine skepticism and all of that. And that once again, we have here the idea that, you know, maybe you got to play dirty. Like if they're going to release reports where they get data as citizen scientists, we're going to release a preprint that does not find what we say it finds, but it's important and we can gull the New York Times into saying that it's dispositive, that it has natural origin, because we're, we're fighting a fight now that has to do 
not with finding the truth, but with the politics of um, of COVID, uh, and you know, sort of this general po- bizarre politicization of 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 COVID, um, which is, I think, maybe one of the more peculiar and disturbing examples of I don't know of 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 social breakdown um, in in our lifetimes that this is something that we've had a fight over. It's not. Nobody way, is, it's not, yeah. It's not just partisan politics here. It's it's and this is something else we've talked about at length here. It's the public cannot handle the truth. Uh they'll be at my doorstep with 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 pitchforks if they know the truth. Uh no one will get uh vaccinated ever again if they if they know the truth about uh the new findings on uh booster shots for this population. So, uh, by the way, I think it is worth noting that as we as we speak today, with all that Americans aren't getting vaccinated, dead, blah 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 blah, we are at a seventy seven percent of Americans, all Americans, from birth, I believe, uh, have gotten at least one shot. So we've actually reached the level. I think it's 66% of, of everybody over the age of five has been double vaccinated. I mean, um, note how that achievement or that accomplishment has gone totally un, un, unremarked because the, there is a general desperate effort to say you need to keep getting vaccinated. Oh, go get your fourth booster. It's not going to have much effect. Go do it anyway. I, I I really think you should. I mean, it's fascinating because, of course, I've I happily got all three. I, I'll probably get the fourth. I don't know. I'm in a I'm a, I have diabetes. I'm over sixty, so I should probably you know I, I should protect myself because I have comorbidities, whatever you want to call it. But I but I read and I know that it says that it's really not particularly effective. I've also had COVID in the last four months or five months. By the way, I'm not even sure I can get it because I had COVID. Here's what's interesting. I had COVID in the last, you know, I don't know, at the end of December, right? Okay. So um, um, I had very few symptoms and I, t- I tested and I had it. And then five days later, I tested. And I didn't have it anymore. I, I, and if I hadn't tested, I wouldn't have known that I had it, to be completely honest. Uh, so now they're saying, don't get the booster. If you've had COVID in the last, I think it's six months or maybe four months. I'm not quite sure. But you do, wait until some period of time after you got COVID to get the fourth boost, to get the fourth shot. But there are probably millions upon millions of people who had COVID, who had no symptoms, who didn't test. So maybe they shouldn't get the shot. Like, I don't know. If you're not supposed to get the shot, when you had COVID before uh, and a lot of people had it according to these estimates who never actually were diagnosed using a PCR antigen test, they may be putting themselves at some risk by getting the, sh- the shot. Well, we don't even I don't know hear any of that. 
And the, the immunity question is really fascinating because there's so there's still so much we don't know. I mean, I have friends whose kids had COVID like two months ago and got and retested and had it again. I mean, they should have a certain amount of immunity. These are vaccinated kids, but they still they, they picked it up again with probably a variant, probably again, mild symptoms. They're all fine. But we don't really know how protective immunity is. And we certainly don't know uh, what that means in terms of interaction with booster shots and stuff. And again, I, I'll say your your dilemma about the booster, John, is the same one that parents of younger children have with regard to vaccination at all, given the fact that both Moderna and Pfizer you know, have, have sent mixed signals about whether it's even necessary given children's natural immunity and, and the, the extraordinarily low risk of hospitalization and death for, for most you know, healthy young children. Anyway, it's fat. It's just, it's, it's, I just want to remind everyone, bring to the table the um, uh, polling around this that we've all talked about, but just to let everybody know that the, uh, of the, I'm looking at about 13 issues that Pew Research Center tested as the top issue for voters. The coronavirus outbreak ranks last, dead last. It is behind the size and scope of federal government, which only we care about. It's behind issues of race. It's behind climate change. It's behind gun policy. It's behind crime. It's behind everything because this is experienced. The outbreak is an experience shared by residents of large metropolitan areas. And that's it. But, but, you know, but what? residents of large <laughs> metropolitan it. areas make up like 20% of the population of the United States. And in electoral, to- electoral terms, they are baked into the cake. Right, but I, I'm very not confused. not a constituency that anybody goes after except in primaries. These numbers confuse me because then you do these polls of like whether or not you should still have mitigation measures like masking in place. And majorities of Democrats say you should. Well, 46% majority? Oh, here are Democrats. Not... This, is, this is a concern for Democrats exclusively. But, but hold Democrats on. Democrats are like, I have know, an answer. There are a lot of Democrats. I, that so is not it only 3%. Go ahead. Sorry. They want, they want masking forever and they want to, not because of COVID, they want to punish the people on the other side. They, 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 well, they want to, I mean, they want to force the, this regime on their enemies. That's they all. do. That's absolutely part of it. But it's also a, a, a badge. You might as well be wearing an armband that says your political affiliations. I think people asked by pollsters whether people should be masked. Uh, if you are a liberal Democrat, you or if you are a Democrat or you're a, or you're a, a woman, and that you say yes, but you don't mean it. That's I think ultimately the problem with the polling is when you do that poll about what what is the most serious issue. Uh, you have no incentive to lie about the about the importance of the virus somehow like there's a, because there are other things you want might, might want to say. But when you're asked questions specifically in the universe of the virus alone, that's when the um, partisan nature of the response to the virus kicks in. And there are things you are supposed to say. Right. There are things you are supposed to say to prove that you are a good person and a, you know, a noble person and all of that. And that's uh, that's what this is, I think. And and it's 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 uh, absolutely meaningless uh, that these people say that we should remain masked and their voices are amplified a billion fold by social media. And there's the CDC still sitting there and it's going to wait till April 19th to release people from the masking mandate on on 
on public transport and and airplane travel. Which we travel. assume they'll do. I mean, there's an outside chance that they extend it. I, I mean, don't think it's likely, but there's certainly an, an effort. Yeah, I to don't lobby think. I, honestly, I the White House will not allow that. I, I, I think it's very plain. I will tell you this: the White House, Ron Klain, is not going to allow to do it. I, we've been saying this for two years. These are political. These are decisions that aren't just, you know, medical or epidemiological or something like that. They're also political. Right. OK, and so that, but this makes Sean Patrick point, Maloney, the head of the DCCC, has said, I don't ever want to hear about masking ever again. They are terrified of this. They know that this is poison for them with, um, you know, with swing voters. And uh, and uh, we're not going to see it. It, it, it. They should just do it now so they get a little more credit for it. But they're not going to. Right. But right? if this is all political and the politics favor moving on from the pandemic in toto, then yeah. what? Where, where, where's the constituency for this? These are the people who are closest to the ground. They would respond to political incentives. They are responding to political incentives. And if the incentives favored COVID mitigation policies, they would absolutely be embracing and endorsing them. I agree. But so so do it today. All Biden wants to do is change the subject. We keep hearing that, like, oh, now he's a now this is one thing where he won't have to make a gaffe. They can just they can just free Americans from the mask, but he won't do it. Because uh they I, I'm saying they will There's not allow a class it element to be to extended. This, because it's it's yeah. not just airplanes where you have to mask, it's it's trains, it's buses, yeah. it's all, all public the, transportation. Yeah. All public transport. Yep. And most most of the you know the jet setters fly two or three times a month at most but most people don't fly with that kind of regularity most people don't fly at all but people use a train every day people use a bus every day and the people who are making these regulations don't almost never very rarely they certainly don't commute into that on public transportation to the cdc offices where they make these you know regulations and put these regulations in place they don't see it they don't have to see it and it's not for them anyway they're the responsible ones I'm going to be very interested to see when they lift the restrictions, uh, whether uh, things change on ma- I, Look, I, I know I'm, fo- I'm focused on New York, but New York does have the largest mass transit system in the United States. Uh, before the pandemic, six and a half million people took the subways every day. Six and a half million. That number is down. At one point, it was down like 90%. Now I think it's down 40% or 50%. And I would be I would be interested to see whether when they lift the masking restrictions, whether that number will pop up. And it is really important for the civil society of New York City that that number rise, because one of the reasons that the subways have gotten so unsafe and that they have gotten creepy and that they have gotten menacing and disturbing and seemingly dominated by uh, schizophrenic and psychopathic people is that they are somewhat empty. And uh, unless they stop being empty. Um, New York's ability to uh, create, to recreate its civil society that it lost because of the pandemic is going to be very, very much compromised. And this is going to be a real world test of what, how people have re- adjusted their lives because they don't want to spend 45 minutes in a mask on a subway if they can avoid it. So they will either not travel to do something like that. And sort of like people in L.A. who won't, you know, don't go to neighborhoods where they have to drive because of because of traffic. 
Um, so they've avoided the subway. Maybe they'll stop avoiding it. Maybe they'll go back to offices when they know that they can leave their house without a mask. They can get onto a subway without a mask and they can go into their office building without a mask and go into their office without a mask. A seamless maskless experience where you don't have to have a mask in your pocket. And it'll be, I, I just think that's something to watch for, whether whether there is one of the things that has that it has remained to prevent the return of ordinary life, particularly as the virus recedes in importance uh, and centrality, has is this. But we won't know until until that actually happens. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. Uh, have a wonderful weekend. Again, commentary.org slash live podcast if you want to join us next Wednesday, April 6th in Palm Beach, Florida for that live to tape podcast of this very podcast. For Abe, Noah, and Christine, John Podhoritz, keep the candle burning.